You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, this is John Spiris Savet with Daniel Kurzane. Hey, Daniel. Hey, John. Great to see you. You too. You haven't been here since the early part of season two. So I get to ask you a couple of things for the listeners. One is tell us again where you rabbi. I'm the associate rabbi at Oak Park Temple in Oak Park, Illinois. That's right outside Chicago. We're doing the episode about the the time knife. And as we were commenting before we pushed record, I am, this is kind of cool because I'm living in the future. I'm one hour ahead of you in uh, I'm in in your future. <laughs> I can tell you what I can tell you what happens. It's it's dark over there. Yeah, I will say though I grew up in central time and where you are and it's a lot easier cuz like the you don't have to stay up quite as late for Saturday night live or <laughs> Johnny Carson back in the day but it's I've been in eastern time for so long. <laughs> when I lived in Kansas, I went to a New Year's Eve party and we all counted down when the ball dropped in New York and then everyone went home at 11:15. <laughs> In the past. (laughs) (laughs) I've been listening to things about time space lately, and this seems like an analogy, very poor (laughs) one that that I'm supplying. So also, this is a chance for you to update, if you wish, your response as to which of the main characters of The Good Place are you most like Mm -hmm. this evening. Unlike last time, I really thought about this one in advance this time. (laughs) And, you know, I got to say, still feel like I'm a cheaty still aspiring to be an Eleanor. But I said to myself, what would I be in the context of this episode alone? Ooh, Because I was feeling that Chidi wasn't very Chidi-like in this episode. And I think there are some episodes as the series goes on where he loses some of his neuroticism. In this episode, I feel like Michael, like a person who sees where he needs to go, but has some hesitations about being able to really go all the way. And so my aspirational character in this episode is Janet, who just has so much confidence and success. Yeah. Oh, cool. Very nice. So uh, you want to bring us into the episode? Give us a summary. Chapter 38. Chidi sees the time knife. Written by Christopher Ansel and Joe Mand. Mandy, I think. Directed by Jude Wang. Michael, Janet, and the four humans meet the judge in the IHOP, the interdimensional hole of pancakes. Jason asks Janet to be his girlfriend since they were married. After Michael's pitch about the complexity of modern life and Jason's impassioned speech on the human condition, the judge agrees to see what it's like for humans to live on Earth. She acknowledges human disadvantage in moral decision-making and may be better than their point totals suggest. Sean maintains that humans are, nonetheless, fundamentally bad. After Chidi accidentally sees the time knife, a trillion realities folding on each other, forming a single blade, he comes up with the idea to test the experiment by repeating it with new subjects. The judge imposes these rules. Sean will select four moderately bad humans to live in a neighborhood designed by Michael to be built in Mindy St. Clair's backyard. Janet introduces Jason to Derek, who has become more sophisticated through repeated reboots, and Jason is disconcerted that Derek is Janet's ex. Janet creates progeny to populate the neighborhood, and Chidi and Eleanor move in together. Sean tells Michael that, should the experiment fail, the humans will be tortured by a demon in a Michael suit. 
As the first human wakes up in the waiting room, Michael is incapacitated by a panic attack. So Eleanor has to step in. All right. Wow. So thank you, Daniel. Before we get thematic, is there anything you just loved about this episode? You know, I I was just tickled by the time spent in the IHOP, both the, the interdimensional one and like the real one, <laughs> which I thought was very silly. Jason decides all of a sudden now he wants to talk to Janet about their relationship. So I think one of my favorite lines in the whole thing is, is this a good time to talk? because of course it isn't but she says there's no time like the present and here there's neither no time nor the present (laughs) it was they somehow pull off those kinds of lines which you know are coming you know the jokes they have to make and they're they're good you know i feel like there's this whole running thing throughout the show about fast food restaurants including fictitious ones which I keep saying we have to do some special episode about about them, but when the judge is talking about her experience on Earth, it, she says, there's this chicken sandwich that if uh-huh. you eat it, it means you hate gay people and it's delicious. <laughs> and it took me a second to catch the the product placement there for Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A right. Gotta call them out. Yeah. And and when they were building the, when Janet had a few of her ideas for the neighborhood, there was that building that said something like insert restaurant name yeah. here or something <laughs> It's like Canva or exactly. <laughs> oh my god. And then you know, on that when when Jason was telling his his story about the uh, the swamp and big noodle and mm-hmm. and then he talked about how possession of a non-fried vegetable <laughs> is a felony in Jacksonville. <laughs> really good stuff with food. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that I was also tickled by the need noggle. Ah. <laughs> a completely unnecessary a space critter. Oh, well, do you know the story about the the Neednoggle? Oh, have to, you have to remind me. Well, ne- David Neednoggle is the guy who does the CGI stuff for the show. And so they gave him a little homage there by naming a thing after him. I did not know that. He, if you listen to the official podcast, they talk about him all the time and his brilliant, his brilliant stuff. I understood that what he did was he would fi- he would do the first like to show people what it might look like. He would, he would do these effects by filming his kids, you know, with, Mm. with the stuff of like the, the coins, like vomiting out of their mouth and all the other stuff for the, or the goo caterpillar cocoon, you know, stuff like that. And it's a great name for a person to have, especially. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite part of the need noggle is I actually rewounded to listen to this. It's like chattering. Like making little <laughs> chittering noises very quietly, which I thought was delightful. <laughs> that is funny. The <laughs> I found even some of the jokes that like I didn't get were funny. Like uh, when they when they cut to Sean and he said I was just in the middle of torturing William Shakespeare yes. by describing the plot to the Entourage movie. Do you? I don't know what Entourage is. Do you know? Nope. Just assume that must be <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's for the kids out there. For the kids out there, yeah. This is not maybe like a funny moment, but where where Michael and Janet are are out there in Mindy's backyard and getting stit and and Janet, you know, I have the some basic ideas, uh-huh. whatever, a trillion of them, exactly. and there's just this kind of. Uh, I'm so Michael says, I'm so glad you're here, Janet, and she, me too, and I just love these Michael Janet moments where I think I I think I've said this before, like partly as a as a child of the. 70s 80s like seeing ted danson as this kind of senior eminent figure in in uh, v comedy and then seeing you know this up and coming darcy Carden, you know next to each other it just it's so cool that kind of mentoring but also she's like so 
talented and so funny mm -hmm. generally and to, to be able to like mm -hmm. be next to him you know who's such a tv mm -hmm. god is I, I love those those relationships. let me dwell on that moment for just one more yeah, which is, yeah, you know, when we were first meeting Janet, people were calling her or calling her by the not the right name or just you know conjuring her. And she was always there, ready to do what was asked of her. But this time, and it's not the only time she's done this, you hear Michael say Janet, and she appears, and you have the impression, and it turns out to be true, that she was waiting for him to say her name. Mm. And she's been thinking about this in advance. So she's able to anticipate his needs. And now her assistance is not mechanical, it's relational. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I feel like, you know, we've talked over the course of many episodes over different characters' arcs. And I think like season two was a, a lot of a Michael arc of, mm -hmm. of evolving. Season one was probably Eleanor. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think this season maybe is Janet's in a, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, she's the one who kind of, you know, I guess it was a couple episodes ago was the one who said to Michael, like, there's nobody but you who's going to mm -hmm. get it. You know, you, there's not some other idea someone else has, you know, it's, mm -hmm to Michael, you know, and uh, yeah, so great. We got to get her. We, I mean, we'd love to get everybody on the, on the show, but if there was some way to get Darcy Carter, that would be, that would be such a blast. You hear that listeners? Yeah. Anybody know her? <laughs> put us in touch. Oh boy. But then she has these other moments. Fine. If you want to put labels on it, I guess he's my son rebound booty call. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a terrific label. <laughs> or she's, what doesn't she say to, to Jason of Derek? He's a buffoon. You have nothing to worry about. <laughs> I didn't catch it that way. That's great. <laughs> and he is awesome. Like I, I have what he does. Jason Matsukas, I think his name, the, the actor is, mm -hmm. he's like Robin Williams-esque in his just zany, mm -hmm. zany out there-ness. And uh, he's also fun to listen, interviewed on, on their podcast about the show. He's just, uh, and if you look at these sort of outtakes, the, the blooper reels on YouTube, you see him like, uh, you know, the, you see the scene that we get, you know, in the, in the final cut, but then you see like the other takes and <laughs> how far exactly he's willing to push mm -hmm. <laughs> both in the physical comedy and the grossness. <laughs> <laughs> So, wow. So this, you know, episode, I think is you, you've actually chosen some, some really hard ones to do. I think just from the point of view of the, the kind of philosophical and ethical philosophy stuff we do on this podcast, I think that, you know, especially you get to the end of a season and it's a lot of like the business of yes. getting the plot somewhere. It's not like new ideas per se. And so I think these are probably really hard to write from a, from a standpoint of, of the the creation of the show and a season in the show. Mm -hmm. And and I love season three, I think is my favorite of all the seasons, but it was like hard to write. There's no like character development per se. It's kind of a knocking again on a on a thing. And actually I found that I had to watch this one, the next one, which is the season finale and the and the premiere of the next, like as a package. But you can sort of disentangle them. And it sounds like from our correspondence before that you've done a little, a little bit of that. So mm -hmm. what do you want to start with? Well as a as an overarching comment I think that this this episode and the show as a whole is making a an argument about the moral status of life today and I got to tell you I'm not I don't think I buy it or I have some I have some skeptical questions for the argument that they're making. So Michael says I wrote down the quote as I listened. He says life now is so complicated it's impossible for anyone to be good enough for the good place. These days, 
Just buying a tomato at a grocery store means that you are unwittingly supporting toxic pesticides, exploiting labor, contributing to global warming. Humans think that they're making one choice, but they're actually making dozens of choices they don't even know they're making. And when the judge says, you, you look, you just buy another tomato, there's really, there's no tomato on earth <laughs> that you could purchase that would net positive points on account of carbon emissions for the transport alone, even if we only think of that, because I freeze framed it to see how many points that took away. <laughs> and I took away more points than eating healthy food. Ooh, yeah. So it, it's impossible to, to buy a tomato ethically. You guys, you could grow your own, right? But unless you're going to be a subsistence farmer, you're not going to be able to do that. So there's a, there's a couple of things which trouble me about that. First, thinking about that subsistence farmer, I, I worry that there's a kind of noble savage mentality baked into this, this point of view, which is we moderns are so complicated that we have to have a whole new way of thinking about good and bad. But if you're just on your little farm out there and you have your little rice paddy, then I'm sure you're going to live a perfectly, you know, you, you can live a perfectly moral life. Now, I don't know if that really that follows because none of those people who are living in the outskirts of Jennervelt are actually going to the good place. Well, no, but I think we a couple episodes ago, we we learned that, you know, Doug, the the Ur Doug, the original Doug who bought flowers for his mother, like mm -hmm. got all the points. And like, it's exactly what you're saying, you know, mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that what I what I really don't what I have really big questions about is are the choices that we make today any more morally complicated or morally laden with immoral ripples than decisions that we were making 500 and 1,000 and 2,000 and 5,000 years ago. Hmm. And you think the show is trying, like this, that the point here is that, so, okay, we're going to design this neighborhood, which is way simpler. And we're going to put these humans who lived in a modern world in it. And that's where we're really going to be able to see what they're about because we're going to, we're going to simplify their yes. world. Yeah. Good. So Eleanor says no rent to pay, no racism, no sexism. Chidi had said that Michael's neighborhood removed all the variables that make life on earth. This I think is the most interesting piece of the episode for me hmm. is this utopia that gets created, which in this magical way doesn't have the structural, structurally oppressive systems that we have always lived in. Right. There is no, there's no, according to Eleanor, no racism, no sexism, because all the people are demons. So how could they be sexist? <laughs> right? And when I was talking about this with with my wife Jessica, she said, Well, come on, at least those four humans, they brought with them their racism, their sexism, that they that they come in as human beings. Uh, but got well, got me wondering, like, well, what what is racism if there isn't a structure for it to fit in? Like maybe there could be a setting, a hypothetical setting only where you could make more morally pure choices. But of course, that's not Earth, right? And it's, and I guess my point is, is, I'm not sure it's ever been Earth. Yeah, that's. I, I want to loop back to that. And I was thinking, as you were writing to me about this before, that the, the, the good place neighborhood in all its iterations does look like a version of a modern neighborhood and probably like a hyper-modern neighborhood. I, my, my son, Alex, who I don't think I've mentioned, is a third of my kids, probably the last one I'm, I've actually brought to mention in the show. I happens to love this particular neighborhood in, in Dallas where we've gone to visit family for weddings and stuff. And it's one of these, you know, it's a self-contained little exurban box with like, 
beautiful little shops, like, like it's like celebration Florida almost, you know, with like, you know, it's, it's totally, you know, this gorgeous little place, which has nice hotels, a pond with fountains and, and, you know, shops and, and everything is there. And it's like the good place and it's got, but you know, the good place too, basically has like, it has the, whatever the frozen yogurt slash lasagna slash chowder, you know, whatever thing. But I mean, it, it looks like modern life in, in it's like, most advanced form, but just without all these systems, you know, in it. But like, how would you know if you get to the good place and you go into the frozen yogurt place? Like, how do you know that the milk and the yogurt, you know, didn't mm. come from cows that mm-hmm. that ate? I don't know, you know, that fed off the the human flesh of the people in the bad place or something, mm-hmm. you know? And like, it's 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 lulling the the humans who are there into thinking that they're living in a version of. Mm-hmm. Of modern life. Although maybe I guess if if they are, maybe that's the control. Like, you know, it does look like Earth. It just doesn't have those, you know, bad factors. But hmm. and there's never been a society on Earth that hasn't had those factors. You know, so the good place seems to suggest that when I buy a tomato today, that tomato has patched into it oppression and degradation of the earth. But if I bought a tomato at a market in Damascus 2000 years ago, right? Like I bet you there was some oppression (laughs) built into the harvesting of that tomato in a world where slavery was accepted as a normal practice for, you know, you know, across the globe. When, as we know, the oppression of women was just like, they wouldn't even think of it as oppression because it was so common the way that different groups went to war war with each other simply on the basis of their difference or their desire to increase their territory the what we would call immoral choices that people were making back there were rampant everywhere you turned and yet this show is suggesting that life that we live today is somehow more immoral or more morally complex than it would be if we were to consider our choices in that system as well so this has gotten me thinking about about a couple of things about the the Torah and the Midrash. So the Torah itself and the the Midrash, I guess we would say for the listeners, is the the explanations that through the ages have attempted to sort of transpose the Torah into a, a, an idiom that's modern for whatever modern is. If you're in Roman era, it's modern Rome, and if you're here today, it's it's here. And I was thinking about actually thinking about something I taught on on Rosh Hashanah many years ago. And credit where is due, it would get sparked by an idea I heard from Rabbi Sharon Brous in Eddie Carr in Los Angeles, who's, who's come up in a number of conversations. And so he's playing with this idea of moral adventure and looking at at Abraham. And in some ways, the story of, of Abraham, Avraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah and the Torah, it's a very, it looks like a very simplified, you know, life. It's not like slavery in Egypt. But I began to think about the things that were the the features of his life, which included wars, which included land disputes, which included, you know, deciding whether to ally or not for a group of people in Sodom and Gomorrah who were evil or reputed to be evil. There was hearsay about them, whatever. And that actually you could really easily map these as a set of challenges that are exactly analogous to to our time. And that would be sort of the the sort of virtue-based, virtue ethics answer to what you're saying, which is that, okay, the, you know, on the consequentialist point system, yeah, there is some kind of difference. So, and we can't do anything about it. So let's like 
locate all our ethical issues in the virtue realm, mm-hmm. because that's sort of the constant thing that, mm-hmm. that runs across. And, and yet I somehow find that like to not be sufficient because, because there is an, there is the fact that, that we have some engagement and an awareness of, you know, we have more of an awareness about tomatoes now than probably the person at the ancient Damascus market did. We have bigger awareness and we also, th- we at least think that we, that at least some of us have the the possibility of doing something about it. And it seems like that might be a difference that, that makes a difference. And, and I think that when you look at some of the stories in the the Midrash that date back to Roman and Byzantine and Islamic times, you see the, the rabbis in those texts actually attempting to sort of backfill into the Torah to take the Torah stories and to say what that's what they're really describing in the sketch form is modern life. They just didn't give you the details. Mm-hmm. And but actually, as you're saying, those details were there. So when we when we learn about about Abraham, he's set in a in a world of commerce in you know ancient Ur where where the where he buys and sells things. And it's an issue of whether it's, you know, idols and whether he's defrauding, whether his father is defrauding old people. And he ends up, you know, having an argument with the king over what's the the truth. And that seems like very modern. And they sort of pull the Torah into, into a modern idiom. What would happen if you put, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the good place, you know, neighborhood reboot in Mindy St. Clair's backyard? Would they act like, you know, would they sort of assume a role that was in a modern world? Well, the one of the most brilliant and eternal, internally sustaining aspects of the Torah is that it is extremely complex and it has so many different ripples and ridges that allow for exploration and creative play and interpretation that each midrash is like its own good place episode, right? They're gonna like play out. Well, let's what if, what if Abraham is a great guy, what if he's a horrible guy? You know, so you'll have one midrash which says that Isaac was just, he was so gung ho about being sacrificed. Like he was like, here's my knife, here's my, here's my neck, dad, like bring the knife. And then another midrash which says that the act that Abraham did was so monstrous that it killed Sarah just to hear about it. And the rabbis are able to imagine the moral value of this, of the acts described in the Torah in different ways. Um, and yeah, what you're describing is like a time knife, actually, of all mm. these things layered on each other, which I'm glad you did, because I, I thought like the indication of how hard this episode probably was to write is that they talk about the time knife, but they don't really, they just like reference it in sort of a mm-hmm. moment. They don't really give it a, mm-hmm. they don't give it the kind of explanation you just did. Mm-hmm. And because then what you're saying is that the issue is not so much like how it might not be, how do I act in in this earthly setting in 2022 or in this mm-hmm. kind of good place simulation mm-hmm. or a simplification, but sort of some stacking of all those things. Yeah. You know, when we tell stories about our, our biblical figures, we do, we stack them. We stack every, it's almost like rebooting them. Actually, it's almost like rebooting them, but not sequentially mm-hmm. instead of a Jeremy bear me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we, which I guess is what the, what the time knife is. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a Jeremy bear ness of, mm-hmm. of a more earthly something. So even if we imagined this simplified world where you can make more morally pure choices, I think that this raised this this concept raised for me another idea that I think is is an interesting one to to turn to the Torah to help us with 
which is, it seems like part of the problem in the point system that the, the heroes are trying to address is that the problem of unintended consequences. Here, I tried to just have a salad. I ended up ruining the earth. I tried to have a chicken sandwich. I ended up hating gay people, right? <laughs> so the, the impact of the action gets judged very severely. And what our human heroes want is more weight given to your intentions. Hmm. And I think that this is a real struggle in the Torah, which as I read it on balance, I feel the Torah cares more about impact than intention, but the Torah is not blind to intention. So the, the, the best example, if we just cut straight to the best example is as people probably have a, a sense about biblical law, if you kill someone, you should be killed. Right. That's, you know, I, I, an eye for an eye ends with a life for a life. But there's, a, there's an exception, right? Murderers are liable for the death penalty. But if you accidentally kill someone, you're in a kind of in between zone. Technically, since you killed someone, your life is forfeit and it can rightfully be taken by the kin of the person you killed. But there are special cities set aside, cities of refuge where someone who unintentionally kills someone can go and live. And there, if the, if the killed person kin comes to the city of refuge and kills the person who killed their loved one, then actually the, kins, the kinsman is a murderer, right? In other words, you're not allowed to be executed so long as you're living in the city of refuge, which you live in until the high priest dies and then you can leave. So, the Torah says there's a difference between a person who intends to kill someone and someone who doesn't intend to kill them. Now, your intention doesn't fully get you off the hook. You become an exile from your community. The life as you know it is over because you took somebody's life. Even if it was a complete accident, you are responsible for that action, but not so responsible that you have to bear the ultimate penalty. So there, I think it's, so that's, that's one example. And there are lots of others. You saw, I sent, I sent you a, a couple of dozen from the Torah, yeah, yeah. Where, where the Torah is trying to play with this notion of how much weight do we give to intention and how much weight do we give to the impact regardless of intention? Well, the other thing that you you had said in our correspondence was that the, the city of refuge is a, is a great analogy potentially to, to the medium place and, mm-hmm. and Mindy Sinclair's backyard that, well, this, these people who we, we acknowledge are are not great. I think we've established that no serial killers, no dictators, no one who managed a boy band, you know, will be <laughs> will be there. Those are the the intentional equivalent of the the people who the the Avenger can go can just pick off. Right. <laughs> no problem. Right. right. <laughs> but but that there is something there is something city of refuges about this new mm-hmm. version of the experiment that that Michael and Janet are about to create. And there is a, a t- and interestingly there's an earthly time limit on it. I was just playing with what you said about, you know, the the death of the high priest or I think the the mm-hmm. jubilee is sometimes involved and I thought it was interesting because I don't know if it's in this episode or the next where the the judge I think gives it one year, one earth year, mm-hmm. which I thought was funny because we we've heard that in 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 the afterlife a time doesn't occur in years, but they're going to experience it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so what do you think, John, about the balance of impact versus intention? Yeah, well, you know, I I think that really, really is interesting because I think that that tracks what we were talking about. I think you know, intention is so much about. I mean, is, I mean, overlaps. I think with this virtue ethics versus 
utilitarian ethics mm-hmm. question. And, and I think that you're right to say that, that, you know, a Torah approach is to, is to integrate them in some way. And, and I'm recognizing we're taking the listeners on a, a crazy, crazy funhouse tour back and forth, zigzagging across the Torah and Talmudic literature here. But a number of years ago, I was thinking about the traditional laws of Shabbat with full disclosure that, that neither of the two of us probably, you know, live according to the, the, the older interpretation or the stricter Orthodox interpretation of these things, but the laws of Shabbat are a lot about how do you know when you've done an act of, of work that's considered forbidden on Shabbat? And they go through a series of things, like whether you did something intentionally or unintentionally, or whether you could foresee the consequence of something that you did. You know, you open this door and it's, you know, you know, caused something to to break or caused a, you know, in modern times you say you you click this switch and it caused a you know, fire to be kindled over there or something like that. And how much should you be aware of that acts like the one you're doing tend to cause consequences like this? And what I took away from that is that Shabbat was meant to be a time where you were hyper aware of the many consequences of your actions. Mm -hmm. And then on the six days of labor, you're not quite held to that standard of responsibility. There are some other uh, Talmudic ideas about when you're responsible for the ripple effects, but usually when you can when you can foresee them, and so I wonder whether the 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 traditional Torah way of looking at Shabbat is a way of saying I want to give you a glimpse of just how much your your micro actions might be connected to other things, but I'm not going to hold you to that responsibility all the time, mm-hmm. and so I don't know if the six to one ratio of you know of that makes a difference, but then mm-hmm. and then in in we talk about Shabbat as a taste of the world to come mm-hmm. in Olam Haba mm-hmm. in Hebrew, like it's a we glimpse. Well, uh, what did I do? Ooh. It's a good place. <laughs> oh, I guess it is. Yes, it's a taste of the good place. Yeah. Oh, nice. And 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 I wondered whether it means like oh, there is a world where we are capable of seeing the the full consequences of everything we do and being held responsible for that, and that that's a good mm-hmm. thing, a source of joy that's integrated with the joyfulness of Shabbat. But we don't actually live in that world, so we can't be held to that standard in the in the world we're in. But what's interesting is that I, what so the good place takes the opposite approach, which is that in this simplified neighborhood, you're not expect you're not expected like they could have done it the other way, where they say, okay, we're going to give them both the awareness of tomato issues and sort of the wherewithal to do it. We're going to provide them with, you know, options of of different ways, which do not include porn sites for people with a sunburn fetish. <laughs> and, and yeah, and so like what would happen if you were if you were better equipped? And I feel like the good place, you know, like the one thing that gets sort of, you know, old is that, you know, Tahani, it's still about what's the word I'm looking for? Self, self-aggrandizement or whatever it is. Everyone still gets reduced to that one thing. And that seems like like that's an oversimplification, right. you know, that's, right. I don't, cause, which I don't think is the kind of thing that Michael or Chidi are talking about here. Mm. There's a level of complexity in the middle of there that the show has been honoring that maybe isn't captured exactly in this, you know, like all the things you said, you freeze frame that, that got points off are like, you don't get, it seems like you don't get the chance to have as many, as many options for that. It's less of a fine, a finely grained system mm-hmm. over there in the new well, in any version, really, of the of the good place neighborhood, we've seen none of the eight hundred plus. So there's a question of what is the essence of a person and of a person's life. So Sean says in this episode, the score they got on Earth 
is how good or bad they are. Full stop. End of story. Mm-hmm. And Sean, I think here is the champion of impact, right? He wants to say, I, I, I don't really care what your intentions were. You damaged the earth. You did violence to other people. You need to be held accountable for that. And, you know, he's a, obviously in the story, he's a humorous figure, but there's a seriousness to that idea that if you break my window by accident, I still have a broken window, mm. even if you're a nice guy. And Sean wants you to have to pay for my window, even if you didn't mean to break it. So is your life or the moral weight of your life judged by the impact of your actions, regardless of your intention? Another way of thinking about yourself, like you were just saying, John, is like, can you boil yourself down to some essential characteristics and qualities? And when we consider ourselves, we probably often do that, right? Like we have labels for ourselves, which we become familiar with. And we see that label acting in the world, whether other people see that too, we see it of ourselves. And then we try to build a shame, a name for ourselves, a reputation, which might or might not reflect our inner desires and and, and urges or may or may not affect the impact that I have, but has a kind of quality to it that is being defined by the words that I say and the image that I'm putting out there. I'm thinking of kind of like the projection of Eleanor's life into the Eleanor of the afterlife, for instance, her soul, <laughs> so to speak. Is that is that really what that is? Or is the essence, the soul, let's say, just as complicated as the human life on earth? I, I suspect that, that your teaching about Shabbat is going to lead us towards a more classical bifurcation of body and soul. <laughs> that soul is a more, let's call it like, morally pure, able to focus on intentions kind of entity. And the six days of working in the world is more of the like earthy, connected, you have to get dirty to play in this game kind of side of things. You had me thinking when you're talking about Shabbat about the the possibility of being able to contemplate your intentions without having an impact. It's a zero impact. No, no, but I think that the, I, I think, I, I don't think that that's how Jewish mm. law does it because I think that there's, you know, there, there are ideas about, other ideas about your impact that are a little, you know, we have this idea of the not putting a stumbling block before the blind, that you should be aware that there are certain circumstances where you could lead someone to cause themselves harm and you should know that. And therefore, it's like you did it. So it's maybe only one or two removes, not a thousand like a tomato. So I think there's that there. The other thing is that Shabbat is so sensual, I think, the way we enjoy it, that that yes, like you might think about whether the bicycle you're riding is creating a, you know, a track in the dirt that is somehow like analogous to plowing a thing, but it is like represented in a physical reality if anybody you know can know what we're talking about i was thinking that i'm sorry again here i am like randomly traipsing about that when the very first time i ever taught about the the good place related to the point system and and jewish law i went to look at another chapter in maimonides this is the same maimonides who really believes that you should in some ways you know think of everything as like the next point or negative point that's gonna that's gonna change your destiny or the destiny of the universe but he also has this very perplexing section where he talks about tshuva as a way that you kind of 
burn off negative points. Like the there's on the one hand, this definition of chuva is like really honestly returning to a situation, rebooting with intention and being able to say, like, I I can prove. And he has this like formula that if like you really do that, you know, there's a there's a way of doing that chuva where you can essentially earn back the points that you lost. But you know, you have to actually do it. You can't just, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. say it. And then he and there's even sort of a grace thing. Like if you did it, you know, you don't start to lose points about, you know, uh, about this particular thing, being a Yankees fan, I think was one of them in episode one, but until you like do it over and over a few times, and then the points, it's like, I guess the grace period on your, on your credit card, the, the interest doesn't quite start compounding yet. Mm-hmm. And, and I haven't thought about it like this, like that's, that's maybe an answer to Sean. Sean says like, there isn't, there is no chuva because once you've done something, it's done your negative impact. That's what you're saying. Your negative impact is your negative impact. Chuva like can be a way uh, but it has to have a standard. It's not just like, you know, I'm sorry. And our our colleague, uh, Rabbi Danya Rittenberg, has recently been been talking in, about her and in her new book about how, how apology is actually way down the line mm-hmm. in a process of tshuva. It's not the first thing you do mm-hmm. after you're caught. The the apology isn't isn't proof of anything. You can earn the right to do that. And Sean thinks like you can, but there is something in between because they, because clearly, as you say, you've done if you've done something or you've caused a negative impact, you have caused that impact. Mm-hmm. So you there has to be some work you do in order to erase that. And, mm-hmm. and maybe it's not just enough to say, well, I am different. Although I think what the good place says is you do. There are so many iterations of the world that, that eventually you can say, I am now different. And therefore that version of me from before, from reboot number, you know, 301 doesn't count anymore because, mm. you know, I've done this. Now, I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about how that applies to this thing, which is supposed to be a single reboot, you know, run once. The Michael original thing, you know, had 803 times to get to this version of Eleanor and this re- version of Chidi. Here, where they're going to take, you know, John and whoever, they're going to only run it once, which is, uh, which is very different. Hmm. Which, by the way, would be like Simone would not think that that was a very good statistical, you know, rerunning an experiment once to test whether it has statistical significance, but that doesn't have any statistical <laughs> significance. <laughs> right, right. And you can see it, you yeah. can see it on our faces, right? when they they realize this is their one shot right like there's so much riding on these four people they're about to meet that it doesn't really like a science experiment does it yeah. but i think you know you you're you're raising question of you started off in a way with a question about about history and whether it really matters like which era and and a lot of the season you know when it's really the jeremy barrymeness of things is has been challenging me in this question of like, is it about the sequence in which things happen in a strict way, you know, where you can look back on something specific in your life and do something about it? Because that's the other thing that's going to happen in this. I think what's going to happen in the new world is that the people, like once again, the four humans are not going to be aware that they're in an experiment. They don't know that their job is to do tshuva, mm-hmm. but everybody knows, you know, the four humans know, and Michael knows, and Janet knows that they have to do that. So without telling them your job is to do tshuva. And, and that's, I think, been a quarrel we've had because the this question of if your motivation is to do tshuva for points, according to earlier in the season, you can't get any points. Like once, you know, and I think in Judaism, that's the other thing. Your intention can be, can start off as being somewhat mixed, you know, like, oh, I need to do this in order to save my life. But out of that can grow something more positive. And if you're only doing one reboot, you know, one, one chance at Shiva, chances are you're not going to 
get there. You made me think about how Judaism has this convenient thing called God who is judging us. And, you know, for better or for worse, God is bigger than the universe and knows everything all at once. And that seems like a really useful, in fact, possibly a necessary concept when you're thinking about judgment. Because in Jeremy Barry style, if I were to consider and do reflection on a particular behavior of mine from my own past, I might see what I did in a different light today than I did then. And society might see if I were to repeat that behavior today, it might be judged differently than it would have been judged when I did it 15 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever it was. And likewise, there are people who have internalized a certain kind of interpretation of their behaviors many times unhealthily and other times, you know, for other, other assessments, they say like, Oh, when I was a kid, I was X and that is their understanding of themselves. And then 40 years later, they come to realize, oh, wait a second. I wasn't like that. My parents were like this, right? And you see your childhood in a totally different way, or you see your earlier adulthood in a totally different way. And now all of a sudden, what you had thought were morally good or bad choices, now it's flipped. So the the way that we count the points, like Sean is a demon. He can kind of count the points objectively, or like the, the machines that put out the numbers, right? That's the god. I suppose, of this story. But the, the, our heroes want intention to be more part of the picture. And that is much more subjective than a God concept would allow for. You know, the proof of what you're saying is actually Jason, I think, because his story about Big Noodle always showing up late right? until he provided Jason shelter after the... <laughs> The swamp under his house flooded. <laughs> yeah. flooded. This is a realization that comes to Jason now in this moment of what we'll call, you know, the present or much long after it happened. But but as Jason is now retelling the story, he says that he never yelled at Big Noodle again, as though he had learned something in the past. Mm. And this is the same Jason who we have been repeatedly told doesn't have any insight you know, into things like this until he gets to the good place, until he gets to the afterlife. Mm-hmm. But he's now showing, it's like what you're saying, in light of what they've been going through lately in their season three, he can actually, he, he's the one who says, I actually knew this thing. I knew this mm-hmm. truth about life before, which I'm going to tell you now. Now, did he know it then? In some sense, maybe he, he had a partial knowledge, but he's now bringing it to bear at a very consequential mm-hmm. time. And, and the last time there was a big test about where they should go, you know, in the presence of the judge, the same judge, when they met the judge, it was Jason playing a video game, you know, and being unable to, you know, resist the temptations around his, his Bortles fantasy, mm-hmm. and which took place, you know, before, quote unquote, but the story is even before that. And so I think that connects to, to what you were saying about the, in, in, on a certain level, what I think maybe you were saying is that the impact, even the impact you think you had at a certain time, which Sean would say is objective, isn't because you, you sort of, you might realize that there was more, there was more consequence. Sean, Sean thinks he sees all the points you know, as they happen, but, but there's a certain recalculating that happens as you reassess your life and what you learn. Now, I'm not sure that that, that's not the same as saying that, you know, a slave didn't pick your tomato like that, Mm -hmm. that did happen, you know, Mm -hmm. whether you think about it differently or not, but, but, but the first thing I think does, there can be sort of a, something which maybe was negative in the past 
could or could not turn out to to generate a positive point, you know, thing at some later point. And we don't know yet. Yeah. Until you work on the chuva right. process, maybe. It's fascinating. Yeah. I forget who it was, but in some podcast I was listening to, the moral hypothetical was was offered. You go to a bar, you drink, you get drunk, you get your keys, you drive home. No one got hurt. It was this podcast. This podcast? Was, who said with that? Rabbi Jeff Middleman. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So let's repeat Jeff's Jeff's story here. But then you you go, you get drunk, you drive, you hit a cat, same actions, different impact, right? So do you judge the the decision to put the key into the ignition the same way each time? Okay, what did Jeff say? No, I think he was talking about that. Like we we do look at that action differently in light of how it turned out. Right. You know, here the imp- here, you know, in Jason's story, the impact was, you know, the same. He got some hospitality. He treated a guy differently. Like those things all happened. But but the significance of all those things didn't really get revealed until later down the road. So I think the problem, like the problem we seem to keep coming up against in in throughout this particularly the second half of season three, is that we know that the point system is flawed in like various ways, but the attempts to correct them also seem like they're missing a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And uh, yeah. do you know whether they had the end in mind? Because the end they stumble upon is a pretty decent system. Hmm. Well, I think one of the things that that your original thing posited was that this this idea of of, of accounting for history or sort of grading on a curve because mm-hmm. modern life is more complicated. Can we take history out of the equation? Mm-hmm. I don't know. How are you thinking about that any differently after another half hour? Hmm. Interesting. Here's how I'm thinking about it. I think that when you start to look closely at moral decisions that are in literature or in our lives and you really think about them, it becomes impossibly complicated. And yet when we struggle to articulate something about them to ourselves or to somebody else or to write a TV show about them, inevitably we have to simplify point system, essential characteristics, a narrative of our lives or the lives of somebody else. And that storytelling is a kind of interpretation of events and and actions. And I wonder how to balance those two aspects of our lives, like the things that we do, I guess it's another way of framing this topic we've talked about already. The things that we do are one thing and the stories we tell about them are another thing. <clears throat> I, I, would, I would maintain, and I'll tell it to Sean's face, that the stories we tell about our actions do have value. Indeed, they might have even more value than the actions themselves. Not that the actions are valueless. The impact that we have is is significant, but just like Rabbi Middleman said, you know, it makes a difference whether you hit the cat or not. Hmm. Uh, it makes a difference whether you wanted to hit the cat. Like all those things matter. And then how you think about yourself. Ah, I'm the kind of person who who is invincible because I drive home drunk every <laughs> Thursday and I am the world's greatest gift. I'm, I'm the greatest gift to the world because I am awesome until I hit a cat and all of a sudden I realize that I'm a schmuck. Hmm. Right. And now like my, my whole world has changed, even though my behaviors haven't. And that's also real. So in some, it's complicated, <laughs> but we have to try to find ways of groping towards more simplicity in order to make any kind of meaningful statement. Hmm. 
Yeah. And I think the other dimension is that you were saying about the stories that we, we tell ourselves until something changes, but the other story that's in play is what other people tell about us. You go to the bar every night, somebody sees you leave drunk every night. Mm. They are petrified at what you might do. And even if a hundred times you go and you don't hit any cat or any person at all, they, they think you're a schmuck because, you know, because you could have, and, and that's who you are to them. Mm -hmm. Even if one day you, you know, even if the hundredth time you wake up and uh, either you hit the cat and change, or you just have an epiphany, your epiphany doesn't matter to them. It factors into their story about what are they doing in a bar? And, you know, that's, that's inevitably, I suppose, another, Mm -hmm. another complication. And I guess maybe again, like the time knife potentially could be sort of all those, stories about you stacked on. And, uh, and I would be curious about, you know, Sean, uh, Sean could have made a case about that. Like, you know, I've seen you, Chidi, and, you know, 1000 dimensions of, you know, your life, you know, all wrapped on each other. And in each one of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> or when you integrate them using a complex formula in six dimensions, mm-hmm. you're awful and you need to be, you need to be tortured. <laughs> you know, the time knife is, I agree with you, a much underutilized metaphor in this episode, but it has some real potential there. And- I think it does. And I, and I hate it because like, I want to think of my life as unfolding in time and learning yeah. and like, you know, that Shiva is something I have some control over. Mm-hmm. And the time knife is like, whoa, it's all jumbled up together and you can't, because I might've thought Michael would have made a better argument by saying, it's not so much that life is more complicated. It's like, you can't do anything. It, like it, the, the problem isn't so much that you cause so much uh, ripple effects. It's that you you have no idea how to how to do anything about that. Mm-hmm. Any individual can't, like literally can't. You know, you yeah. can't go out and change the tomato right. system. Right. We've been talking a lot about tomatoes. By the way, it should be said that this may not be true because tomatoes specifically are an area where where organizers and particularly rabbis, I have to say, have done a lot of work. You, are you a tomato rabbi? I'm a tomato rabbi. Oh, tell us about that. Tell us, tell us about that. So in October of 2014, I traveled with Trua, the rabbinic call for human rights down to Immokalee, Florida to learn about the coalition of Immokalee workers who are a terrific organization to try to advance workers' rights and specifically in the tomato picking agricultural industry and their worker driven social responsibility model has been really influential in and and award winning in terms of a way of trying to advance the human rights of people who far too often are overlooked by and the systems that put them in place. And so we we rabbis were allies with many other people in trying to support the coalition of Immokalee workers to help to increase wages and to improve conditions for agricultural workers, specifically in the tomato fields in Florida, and then through up and then up and down the the eastern coast, and the the gains that were made in the tomato industry had ripple effect to other vegetables, to milk, and 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 the the model of of organizing has been has been truly really impactful. Well, I have to thank you for that, and because of the impact it's had through my ability to talk about it and teach to other people. And in, in the context of this discussion, it's also interesting because now the buying of certain tomatoes at certain supermarkets or fast food restaurants even is it, at least a, it, it might be a plus, it might be a neutral, you know, mm-hmm. and you're not even aware, you know, that that choice mm-hmm. you made to go shop at this supermarket chain instead of another is actually, you know, should you get points under the system, do you think, right, for, right. for that inadvertent act of good? <laughs> or when Trua 
like the coalition of immokalee workers part of their strategy was to have a boycott of wendy's because wendy's was the only major fast food chain that was not participating in the fair food program and trua was in an odd place being a rabbinic organization they wouldn't ordinarily have a comment about whether you should eat at Wendy's or not, because it's not kosher and like <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be eating in there for lots of reasons. And so they never really formally, as I understand it, like endorsed a boycott to tell people don't eat there because when you, when the boycott is over, you can eat there. Like that wasn't their message. And so like, I'm curious, like, so I also wouldn't eat at Wendy's just cause I don't eat at fast food, generally speaking, but I still have in my mind when I drive by Wendy's, Oh, I'm not going there, you know? <laughs> And like, I wouldn't go there anyway. I wouldn't go to McDonald's either, but like, I really don't go to Wendy's. <laughs> and like, what's the moral value of that? See, I know that in the, in the traditional way, cause we've seen some of Michael's ledgers, you know, when, when uh, there, that kind of thing would absolutely appear on a page somewhere as having some kind of, you know, point value or connection mm-hmm. somewhere along next to his father's, I think camping out in the Arizona State University financial aid office and <laughs> screaming for whatever whatever purpose. You know, we we have really roamed in a lot of places, which which I think is you know fair enough because the episode kind of does that too. It wraps a lot of threads together, and you know, I would say Daniel, I, I agree with you that that this is conceptually an episode that has that has some flaws in it that, or at least incompleteness in how it executes it definitely gets the job done of moving things forward and and i think hopefully we did a good job of pulling back or or taking a new run at some of the concepts that have been in the discussions on this podcast and at least giving them a a little look again and, and saying something a little new about them while setting up our next episodes well thank you for having me back thank you daniel for talking it's been a great it's been great fun we'll do this again in season four all right Well, that's all for another episode of Tove. Thank you for listening. You can help us reach new people by giving us a good rating on your app or telling others on social media or in a simplified version of the world, talking to people. Subscribe so you'll get our season three finale as soon as it's out. Keep up with us on social media at Tove Good Place or email with us, tove at tovegoodplace.com. We'll have show notes on this episode on our website, tovegoodplace.com, where you can also catch some explanations of the Jewish terms we're using and the texts we are referring to. Daniel Kurzane is on the web at danielkurzane.com. That's K-I-R-Z-A-N-E. And I'm John Spiracevet at rabbijohn.net, J-O-N, or on social media at rabbijs3. Again, thanks for taking the time with us today. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.